This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. Welcome back to the Can Do Podcast, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. This week is part two of our special Memories of Long Acres segment. In this segment, we're going to remember some of the great horses who ran at Long Acres, reminisce about some of the great names and the horsemen and the jockeys that populated Long Acres over the years, talk about the great Long Acres Mile and some of the performances that were seen there, and reflect on the factors that led to its closing day and what has happened to racing in the Pacific Northwest since that time. Thanks again for joining us. It's been a pleasure recording this Memories of Long Acres, and I hope you enjoy part two. Of course, if you're talking about a racetrack, you've got to talk about the horses. And Long Acre saw some great names over the years, along with some names perhaps lost to most, who nevertheless turned in great performances. For many years, Long Acres had the highest average starters per race in North America. Some years, nearly 10 starters per race, which is pretty amazing when you consider they were running 50 races a week. You know, there's 10 races daily. And you had, well, I think, 1,500 stalls approximately in the stable and every year, Glenn Williams and then his, the man who replaced him later on, Grant Holcomb, they'd have to process, you know, 3,500 to 4,000 stall applications and weed it down to 1,500. So, I mean, it was very different from now. One of the more memorable horses to come to the track was one who actually never raced there. So I know that you at one point had a highly appropriate visit from a Triple Crown winner at Long Acres. Yeah, Seattle Flu in 1977. Well, Seattle Flu was co-owned by Karen and Mickey Taylor, who were from White Swan, Washington, hence the name Seattle Flu. So they thought it'd be fun to bring the horse back up and show him for the home people. But it turned out he had just gotten beaten in the swap stakes, very controversial race where the trainer, Billy Turner, didn't want to go to Hollywood Park. Uh, but they took him there and he got beat. But then the, uh, a week later, he was up here. His special ticket got in. I believe the revenue proceeds went to cancer research, or I know the money went to charity. It was quite quite spectacular. He paraded two straight days at the track, and it was a big, big media event. Harley and Stephen remembered that day very well also. It left an indelible impression on both of them. I think that one of my fondest memories, and, and Stephen, I don't know if you were there the day that Seattle Slough came back to do it. Galloping no, around yeah. the track, um, no, but, yeah. you know, it, it was as big as any mile day that ever happened out there. It was, you know, the stands were packed, and just watching a horse run around the track. I still can see Seattle coming to home stretch, and just you know, that horse was just powerful. I mean, just such a beast out there, and but just also so proud. I mean, the head was up high and knew what was going on, right? Knew all these people were, you know, basically there to watch him. <laughs> I was just going to reiterate that I was there that day, too, and I was 12 at the time, and that was, that was one of the first times I had ever seen, you know, a horse that you 
definitely knew, like you said, Harley, he definitely was so aware of what he was doing there. And it did. It just, it was walking across the infield. It took a stop and then just looked at the audience and just kind of gave, took it all in. I mean, it was, I have it on film, but it, but it's my memory that kind of lives on. And I had to check my memory with the film footage. And sure enough, that horse just, it was the first time I sort of realized how much personality uh, a horse has. But there are names that may not have made the national racing press with a couple of exceptions, but the memories of them and some of the exceptional performances they delivered live on with anyone who has memories of Long Acres. And names like Turbulator, Captain Condo, Trooper 7, and Schnook Pass still echo down the years to those who watched their memorably gritty and, in Schnook Pass's case, memorably speedy performances. Yeah, some of the horses that actually raced there, talking to my colleague Joe Withy, the, the ones that in terms of popularity, the Trooper 7, a Washington bred by table run, he won the Long Acres Mile in 1980 and 81. And when he won the race in 1981, there were over 25,000 people in a track facility that could comfortably hold about 16 or 17,000 people. And the grandstand actually shook. You know, I was there that day in August of 1981. He was ridden by Gary Bays. He was owned and bred by a gentleman named Eugene Zarin, who bred the horse in his backyard here in Wana, Washington, which is not far from Tacoma. And so it was a, a, a backyard breeder. This guy was a Boeing engineer who trained horses part-time, and it was just a spectacular kind of rags-to-riches story that the, the public got behind. And those fields in 80 and 81 had several excellent California shippers, him winning was quite spectacular. Uh, Turbulator was from Eastern Washington. My colleague John White, if you ever heard him on national broadcast, that's his all-time favorite horse. And he he didn't win the mile, but he had one of the most famous races where his stirrup broke, and he still managed to to finish fourth. And you know, everyone knew his nickname was Tubby. Everyone knew the great Turbulator. In fact, we have a. Uh, a statue of Turbulator here at the track still to this day at Emerald Downs. And then another one I would mention would be Captain Condo, another horse from Humble Beginnings owned and bred by a gentleman named Baden Ashby. And Captain Condo was one of the biggest horses you'll ever lay eyes on. He was over 17 hands, I believe, a big gray horse. So he was impossible to miss on the racetrack. What made him unique was he had his best years at ages eight and nine. And, uh, really got on a roll, and again, Gary Bays was the writer of him, and he was just tremendously popular. You know, a blue-collar kind of story. Another backyard bred, you know, humbly bred, who just uh, turned into a, a great horse. One of the most famous horses ever would be Chinook Pass. He's the only Washington bred ever to win an Eclipse Award. He broke his maiden at Long Acres in 1981, and then in 1982, he set a world record for five furlongs, 55 and 1, and then went down to California and to this day, Lafitte Pinkai Jr. If you ask him who's the fastest horse you ever rode, not necessarily the best, he would say Chinook Pass and nothing else was even close. He was just tremendously, tremendously fast Washington bred sprinter by the sire called Native Born. And his final career race, he did end up winning the Long Acres Mile in 1983, and that turned out to be his final career start. So he did prove he could get a route of ground, and then he lived a long and happy retirement not far from Emerald Downs out here in Maple Valley. So um, he's certainly another one that just was very synonymous with and, and transcended into mainstream 
sports coverage here in the Seattle area. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about Trooper 7, I, the first thing I thought of was he almost sounds like the Smarty Jones of his day, kind of humble beginnings. Very similar style, too. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Gary Bays, you know, who's now a steward here, who was the all-time leading rider at Long Acres, who's uh, Russell Bays' cousin, and uh, I personally think was a better rider than Russell, although they both were great. He'll tell you that Trooper was a smart horse, and that, you know, he basically would hit the holes himself, didn't kind of just hang on and trooper would take him for a ride but he had tactical speed and would make out a good trip for himself every time because he was a very fast and very intelligent and a very game racehorse and he added all up he was brilliant and he you know when we say backyard but he actually was a nicely bred horse he was by table run who was for many years one of the top sires in the state of washington and he was out of a, a breedmare named miss hollanda who had thrown several pretty fast runners before Trooper 7, including one named Bravo 7, who was one of the fastest horses on the ground. So he had a license to be a pretty good horse. But he certainly was, uh, him and Captain Condo, I think, and Turbulator would rival for the three most popular horses in track history. And then Chinook Pass, too, actually, just to be as fast as that at five and a half and last and win the Long Acres Mile. I don't know if people that aren't familiar with the sport would really appreciate how difficult that is. And- he proved his greatness by going down to California and whipping the fastest sprinters down there. And, that, you know, that was an era where California was kind of the king of speed in the country. All the fastest sprinters were generally coming out of there. And he went down there, and no one could touch him. And he won an Eclipse Award. You know, that was before the Breeders' Cup, of course. The Breeders' Cup came in. first running of the Breeders' Cup was a year after Chinook Pass retired. So it's, it's a shame, because I'm pretty sure he he would have been pretty tough to beat in the Breeders' Cup sprint. He was that kind of horse. Like fans everywhere, what made racegoers remember horses like Captain Condo and Turbulator was the display of their will to win. You know, it's about grit. It's not necessarily about talent. And certain horses like Turbulator or Captain Condo may not have been the most beautiful horses, but people love them for their grit. And you kind of, you did become aware of these horses over time. And there are definitely some fan favorites out there. Alert listeners of this podcast will also remember the name Saratoga Passage that Joe Steiner mentioned in an earlier interview. Washington-bred Saratoga Passage won the prestigious Norfolk Stakes at Santa Anita for two-year-olds before sore shins knocked him off the Kentucky Derby Trail. To show you how much our sport has changed, this trainer, Robert Leonard, was a full-time airline pilot who trained Saratoga Passage on the side. Eventually, Leonard left the airline and became a full-time trainer. For a small track and an isolated outpost, Longacre seemed to consistently produce the finest quality jockeys and trainers year after year. Guys like Gary Stevens, and, and the list goes on of people that were part of that track through the years, and so many great horsemen, some, some of the best horsemen I've ever been around with legs and horses with types of uh, issues, because they were, they were cheap for claiming races, and, and you have to be a good horseman to deal with those kind of issues. You know, uh, Russell Bays, he started up in the Northwest, and his father was named Joe Bays, and he was a top rider back in his time. And, you know, the list goes way back to, I, I don't know if his father was riding, but the Bays family was a strong family where they had brothers and cousins and, and, and all this amazing riders and good people, I'm telling you. And then there's another big family called Gibsons, and there are a ton of them up there. And there, there, there were a lot of, like I said, a lot of families involved. The Bays family, you know, was familiar with Russell and Gary, but 
there was so many of them that were trainers, you know, Joe, Carl, Buford, Ken, you know, they, they were the first family of racing in Washington, and they were always uh, very prominent. Joe Steiner's family is fondly remembered as fixtures at Long Acres. Now you mentioned Joe, the jockey. Well, his parents have run the track kitchens. You know, they worked at the Long Acres one, and now they run the one here in Emerald Downs, the Quarter Shoot Cafe. Yeah, bottom line is they were wonderful horsemen, family ties that go way back. And, you know, once they lost, and I know this happened in, in other tracks across the country, and, I, and this is where I grew up, so that's where it hits home for me and, and my family and people that I know. And it, really, it really affected a lot of people when they closed it. Every racetrack has its annual marquee event. At Long Acres, it was the storied Long Acres Mile. In Seattle, Sunday was always Long Acres Mile Day. And Long Acres Mile is still held on, on a Sunday. And one of the things I read that was very interesting was it was the choice of the mile distance was for a very deliberate and a very specific reason, which I thought was fascinating. Do you mind uh, talking about that a little bit? I'm not positive. I think it was mainly it was looking for a niche for a type of race where they could maybe have something unique. And I believe it was the richest, for many years, the richest race at the one mile on dirt in North America, which takes a special kind of horse to do because one mile is, depending on how you look at it, is either a very long sprint or a very short route. And it means the horse pretty much has to run hard the entire eight furlongs. There's no breeders in the mile race. But I, I think mainly that was the reason it was, it was for a niche, for something unique that they could build upon. If you go through the media guide and look at that race, you name the Hall of Famer, and chances are they either competed or won in that race over the years. I know, for me, the first one I ever saw was 1978, a horse called Bad and Big, ridden by the great Bill Shoemaker, with Richard Mandel, the trainer, came in and went wire to wire, and it was a huge event. Billy Shoemaker comes to Seattle, you know, and it was, I remember just seeing the pure class on display there, and that was a, a true, uh, you know, prototype, mile-type horse that could just go throw down those 23-second quarters and just keep going and going and going and going and turn off all uh, challengers. And I was like, wow, there's, there's a mile horse if I ever saw one. But it was a very, very difficult race to win and still is. I know, you know, one of my duties here for many years, I've been assigned to try to go to Southern California and recruit horses for that race, which we still run with the, still the name Long Acres Mile, and I know trainers like Bob Baffert and Jerry Hollendorfer have told me that is a really, really hard race to win because for the reason I mentioned, it's a, it's a tricky intermediate distance. And for some horses, it's perfect, but it's there's really no breathers in it. It's uh, it's a hard hard race on a horse because it's it's eight very very intense furlongs. Right, right, it is, and then especially going around two turns, you're you're going like you said, you're going hard every step of the way. The sprinter, that's right, is not going to last on it. Um, and 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 I think the two turns makes it uh, you know additionally difficult. I think some people that aren't familiar with racing don't appreciate the difference between a one turn and a two turn race, and the extra energy that the horse has to expend to navigate those. And then you factor in that with the mile, it starts pretty much into the clubhouse turn and post position can be a big factor, you know, trying to get positioned into the first turn. And it's a very, very tricky, difficult race. 
While Long Acres is now gone, the Long Acres Mile lives on, now contested every year at its successor, Emerald Downs. Sadly, changing times can catch up with even the most beloved of institutions. Such was their love of the sport, its pageantry, and its traditions, that Joe Godstein and the Alhadavs resisted some of the innovations that were sweeping the sport in its later years. The family really held tight to its traditions, and they did not want to adopt all the, you know, funky betting. They had the Daily Double and they had an Exacta, and that was about it. And, you know, they resisted that forever. They just did not want, they just thought it was just playing with, you know, numbers, and it's not about the sport. And likewise, they resisted doing giveaways, which they eventually did do, but they really didn't want to cheapen the gate. They wanted people to come for the pure aspect of the horse racing and to enjoy the surroundings and stuff. And so it's just interesting to, to, to know how much the family resisted those kind of things until the very end when they just needed to have new revenue sources. And so the whole satellite betting, I mean, just, you know, total resistance. Yeah. They wanted people to show up. Of course, one is left to wonder if this didn't contribute to the track's ultimate demise, but there were other factors involved as well. There's a lot, there's so many things that people can do and, it's really kind of separated itself from the past. When Lawmakers was open, that represented over 90% of the legalized gambling in the state. That was before the lotteries came in in force and Indian gaming compacts in this state came in in 1996. So now thoroughbred racing is less than 5% of the gambling, legalized gambling in the state. So, I mean, Lawmakers had a, an amazing advantage in that they had a virtual monopoly on gambling in the state of Washington, and that makes for quite a captive audience. Now, they did a great job there, don't get me wrong, and it was a beautiful place, but that's what a lot of people don't recognize. Maybe to the Al Haddaf's credit, you know, they, they saw some economic indicators. I know their advisors did, and it's like they could maybe see that, you know, that things were changing. But on the other hand, when the, the year the track closed in 1992, they're still averaging 8,000 people on track on a, in a 130-day meeting, you know, with an average handle of 1.3 million or whatever. And that's live on live, as they say now. So, I mean, it was still thriving. It's a tough decision for any business owner. The battle between economic indicators going one way, the present state versus a potentially less lucrative future state. Racing is a business like any other, and these decisions are hard and painful in their impact. It took everybody by surprise, but at the same time, Everything was sort of pointing in that direction, too. It just it became increasingly harder to run the track, you know, based on insurance and the, the modifications that needed to be done to the track to, to keep it in line with the other tracks. And it just became insurmountable. And, and, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of give. There was a lot of, remember, jockey strike not too long before the track closed. There was, a, you know, there was a lot of challenges that they were faced with. They added all these gimmick bets, and it was the thing that they did as a last resort because, you know, now we had the lottery, and different people were getting their two dollar thrill some different way. And so everybody blames Del Hadas, and, and I don't fault people for that. But at the same time, I think anybody given the same circumstances might have made the same choice. Yeah, but I want to stress that while the outlook, you know, long-term, while the landscape was changing, the track was still doing fine. You know, the on-track attendance was 
still over 8,000 a day. Mutual handle is 1.2 million a day. And again, it's for anyone who follows racing, that's live on live handle, which is the, you know, the greatest revenue maker for, for track operators. So it was, it was doing well, but the Boeing company, which, you know, everyone knows it's a big aerospace giant headquartered in Seattle with plants, several plants, you know, in Renton, Seattle, and up in, uh, past North Seattle, up in Everett, they were looking to acquire land. And I'm not sure who initiated the offer, but one thing led to another. And I think originally they were looking to sell the south 40 acres of the property. And then Boeing wondered, well, how about if we just buy the whole thing? A deal was struck in probably June of 1990, while the racing season was still going on, but it was denied until after the season. Then after the season finished in September of 1990, the Alhada family had a press conference and announced that Long Acres had been sold to Boeing and that the track would cease operations immediately as a racetrack, and then the changeover would occur after December 31st, 1990. Well, that created a bit of a furor because it kind of left the Washington State racing industry high and dry. The economic impact of that was tremendous on, you know, owners, trainers, breeders, people who sell the hay, vendors, you name it. Then for many years, you know, I went down to Southern California and worked at Santa Anita for 92 to 07, pretty much. But this, this subject, it hurt because it was a, a great place and was unnecessary in the opinion of many people what happened. It was a bombshell because it's one thing, it's sad when a place goes away, but people can kind of understand it if, you know, if it's a restaurant that's just not doing business anymore, right? It kind of had its day and people moved on and while it might be sad, you kind of understand, okay. But the problem with this was that wasn't the case here. It was kind of a place that was still thriving. So that's, and then the suddenness with which it happened, that's what kind of left a bitter taste in some people's mouth. The El Hadifs certainly heard the local sentiments about their decision, and they still do to this day. It could not have been an easy decision, and they took a huge amount of heat for it. It's interesting because we've lost sports teams here before, but it seems like the vitriol for the family was incomparable. I mean, I, I think we all hate Howard Schultz for losing our Sonics, but there's just something deeper about uh, the vitriol uh, towards the El Hadifs for selling the track. It's hard to say where that all comes from. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, even all these years later, it's still there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was telling you earlier, Bill, I think, you know, one of the interesting things was, and Stephen probably doesn't even remember this, but, you know, the service workers were all under a union. So, you know, we were part of the service workers union. So that was interesting because, you know, you had a, a labor management divide there. And, and But I always thought the negotiations were always fair, and um, the jockey ones were always a little bit tougher for whatever reason, but they were, but... Yeah, I think shutting the place down and selling it, I think it, from a business standpoint, you know, you get it. But I think it goes back to the family part. I think it's just so many lives were intertwined with the track. And it's similar to how, you know, when Boeing moved the headquarters to Chicago. I mean, it's that type of just dire animosity, right? How could you do that to Mr. Boeing, right? You know, and it's the same thing here where, you know, it's just so many people and so many generations were involved. You know, it wasn't just one generation and... You know, and there's livelihood, right? And, you know, it's, it's how people made their living. 
Perhaps Stephen best captured some of the underlying reasons why the hurt was so pronounced and why it is still there. When you have an association with a family-run business, let's say, it gets personal. And while I was doing the documentary, there was just an untold number of stories that I could have told about Joe Godstein handing somebody a hundred bucks on their way out of the track because they didn't have anything when they left or jockey being injured or something like that and him helping out. And those are the kinds of things that create that personal sort of connection. And then that person tells, you know, two people and so on and so on. And it's, it's always very personal when you know that some particular person owns it. And because they, because they owned it, they didn't just own it, they put a huge amount of pride into its presentation. And that just was like, that, that's something that didn't have a return other than just your feelings about the place. It was like, to put all that effort into the landscaping to make a beautiful environment didn't change their numbers. I mean, a longer-lasting, long-pull sort of effect, but it wasn't a uh, direct ROI in terms of what they were getting from it. But you just felt like, oh, someone planted flowers from, you know, in the front of their home, and they, they tried to make it, the neighborhood look beautiful. There was just a, and, and you, had, you had a name to associate it with, too. And, and unfortunately, that goes the other way when, it, when you don't get what you want. <laughs> Closing day was, of course, bittersweet. It was, again paradoxically, should a track that's quote-unquote going out of business, should it be having its biggest attendance day ever and its biggest handle day ever? In other words, to me, it was kind of perverse, the whole thing. It's like, why is this happening? Look at this. I mean, I realize a lot of people were out there for the novelty of it being the last day. But throughout the whole last season, we were just, you know, we were setting records. And I'm like, why? It's just it just seemed off, you know, why is something that's seemingly everyone's enjoying so much? Why is it going? So to me, I, it was, I know some people enjoyed that day. I did not, you know, I know Gary Stevens, who's one of the most famous jockeys to come out of long acres. I know he was, he, he gave some pretty pointed comments to uh, the press the last couple of years, voicing his displeasure at what was happening up there. And I know that probably didn't sit well with the uh, former owners of the racetrack, but he's, he's a very emotional guy, you know? And I, I think, I think he was feeling like I would, he wouldn't have missed it for the world, but at the same time, it was like, why is this happening? And I just remember it was the day went on forever and it was 26,000 people. And it, I, I'd say that was almost conservative. It was just absolutely filled to the gills. The lineup to buy souvenirs or to make a wager, everything was unbelievably busy. And it was, that, that was the feeling I had throughout the day. And because it was like, to me, it was felt like I, you know, was losing a big part of my life. So it's interesting thing is it opened up some other opportunities in my life that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So it's, it's really fascinating when you think about it, you know, what happens. And uh, one door closes, another one opens. There's even a website that's called the, the Ruins of Long Acres. And just looking at the other day, and it's been what the place closed 26 years ago, and nature's already reclaimed it. Unless you specifically knew that there was a track there, you wouldn't be able to, I mean, you can see the clues are still part of the wall that separated the apron from the racing surface and all that. But, it, you know, for such a big place, it, it's gone alarmingly fast.
You mentioned uh, something about the, you know, you mentioned the art collection that the Gottsteins had inside the house, and earlier you mentioned the art collection that the track had just in general, and that's, I think, one thing that a lot of people who uh, don't, you know, go to the races, don't appreciate the the artwork and the kind of the historical treasures that are at a lot of these places. What what happened to the art collection after Longacres closed? That's a great question. A lot of it is still here at Emerald Downs. In fact, the room I'm sitting in right now is one of our suites located on the top floor that can be rented out by the public. Has some of the equine art, and a lot of it is with the Alhadif family, Ken and Michael, the sons of Maury Alhadif, who was, whose father was married to Joe Gottstein's daughter. They have a lot of the uh, artwork, I understand, in uh, downtown Seattle. And, and some of it is located at the, the Washington Thoroughbred Breeders Association, which is just adjacent to the racetrack here, too. has quite an extensive collection from, from Long Acres. Out of that shock of the Long Acres closing, however, the racing community rallied to preserve the sport in the state while Ron Crockett worked on putting a deal together for Emerald Downs. A mechanical engineer by training and a horse racing fan by the grace of God, Ron Crockett stepped into the void created by Long Acres closing. Vince Brune tells us about the efforts of the racing community and Ron Crockett to address the sudden crisis triggered by the closing announcement. Kind of a crisis group, the Emerald Racing Association was formed and they were able to negotiate two-year extension phase-out period where the track would still be allowed to operate, and that's when it was called Change to Long Acres Park. The Alhadifs rented the equipment to the Emerald Racing Association for a dollar a year, so there was two additional years of racing in 91 and 92 after the sale to Boeing, and that's when Ron Crockett began planning Emerald Downs the replacement track, and he had to go through all kinds of environmental impact procedures and all kinds of hurdles to make it happen. In the interim three years, in 93, 94, 95, there was no racing in western Washington. However, the Emerald Racing Association conducted a season at Yakima Meadows and with increased purses over there, and that went on in 93, 94, 95 with most of the owners trainers, jockeys, etc., kind of moved over there for three years. And then Emerald Downs opened on June 20th, 1996. Vince and Joe both talked about how, despite the sadness of the closing, resilience, as it always does, carried the day. There's, a, there's so much history and really um, affected a lot of people, and a lot of people have really great memories, really fond memories of that. So, and fortunately, they have Emerald Downs up there now, which is really nice. That's given a lot of people, you know, hope and something to look forward to. It's never going to be the same because that's just life. And your parents have actually moved on to move their tack to Emerald Downs, Joe, correct? Correct. My father has always been in the restaurant industry, and my mom, of of course, was a racetrack brat, and she ponied horses when she was young, and she's an amazing woman. I mean, she eventually, as, as us kids grew up, there's four of us kids, as we all grew up and moved on, my mom and dad got into the backstretch cafe. They they call it the quarter shoot cafe, and they and they started that up. They started working at Long Acres in the final years, and then they were chosen to do the new one at Emerald Downs, and they've been there for since they started there, twenty something years. So I believe I'm not sure exactly how many years, but anyways, they've been there from the start, and it's it is it's the place to be. It's a big kitchen. 
a lot of seating area with big windows looking out towards the trail that takes you to the track where the horses go on their way to the racetrack. And you can see Mount Rainier from, the, from there, and it's, it's great. My mom has, like, a, a big museum in there. It's uh, collectors of old memorabilia from the track and from different racing yeah, pictures and trophies and all kinds of collectible things. If anybody that comes there just says it's the best place, it's the best racetrack kitchen they've ever been to. Hollendorfer says that to me. So, Oh, going to try it then. That's wow. And and I would imagine you are featured prominently in some of those pictures as well and uh, memorabilia, I would hope. Yeah, yeah I think it's like a, a, my, a lot of my uh, pictures and, oh, my mom has that. She saved everything anyway, so... It's like there's a small Joe museum in there. <laughs> I was so happy to be able to come back home 10 years ago, you know, because the track we have here now is, is quite nice. That being said, an interruption of three years in your business model is going to have an effect, as Vince Brune reminds us. You know, during those three years, of course, you lose a lot of owners and so forth that you never get back. Fans, people who wager, all kinds of stuff. So what came out of it was a beautiful facility here at Emerald Downs, but how it came about was pretty difficult. You know, I think the consensus we would have up here is thank God for Ron Crockett. He was the guy who, one person who stepped forward and with an actual plan and the financing to pull it off and the tenacity to fight through the political hurdles of building a big place. You know, we don't necessarily enjoy if the Mariners and Seahawks want to get something done around here. Not only can they get it done, they can get some public funding, right? Well, he, 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 <laughs> this guy pulled this thing off, and it was, I mean, if you were to ask him now, was it worth it? I think his answer would probably be yes, but he wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> so, because he, he, had, he didn't know what he was getting into. But he's the kind of guy who gets, he gets it done, put it that way. But it would be a mistake to discount the effect such events can have on an individual and how they look at life and things going forward. Change is a constant. It doesn't make it any easier, though. That's right, yeah. And it makes, I know it's made me, not cynical, but it's made me wary. Uh, I've learned that people say something can't happen. I've learned, oh, yes, it can, because I've seen it, you know, where something that would have been thought unthinkable happened. But after all, we are fans of racing, and we are always looking for the bright side. I'm not sure saying time heals all wounds is an accurate description, but it, in, the, in the case of this, it kind of has, you know, because I've been able to reflect on it. You know, who, how would it have been today? You know, the things have changed so much, right? So at least now we've got a very modern, beautiful plant. It's worked out okay. I think Vince Brune's sentiments about Long Acres here sum up how everyone who ever had anything to do with the track felt and still feels about it to this day. It's an, an area that's pretty, pretty close to me. So We all get older. It's a no contest between us and Father Time. But among the things that sustain us through the endless struggle are the memories. Memories of the people, the places, and the events that marked our journey through this life. While this podcast was strictly related to the memories of Long Acres, we all have our own Long Acres, whether they be people, situations, buildings, or events. We honor them by remembering them and using the best of those memories to guide us forward in this life. Save them, 
hold on to them, treasure them, pass them on to your family and friends. Each of our own Lion Geekers are part of the glue that binds us all together. We are all exceedingly lucky to be comforted by the memories of Long Acres in all of our lives, whatever and wherever they may be. Thank you for listening. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our special two-part Memories of Long Acres. I really want to make sure to thank Vince Brune, Harley Spring, Stephen Sadis, and Joe Steiner for their contributions. I greatly appreciate their support and their thoughtfulness. I also want to make sure to especially thank Kemper Clyde and Ross Duncliffe at On Tour Comedy. They did the hardest work of all. They put this thing together for your enjoyment. I really do hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing it. We're looking forward to doing more of this with the podcast. Thanks again for joining us.